When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. Again, Alex and I are very excited. Who have you got for us today, Alex? We're always excited. So we've had two weeks off and our first interview back is going to be with Serena Dyer, who's a lecturer in history and design and material culture at De Montfort University. And she's with us today. This is really cool. You know, like all this patriotic stuff in wartime, like by British and stuff. She works on that of a span of hundreds of years about like consumerism and stuff. So help you broader project she's working on is on by British movements and patriotic consumption especially when it comes to fashion in Britain so I'm really excited about this Serena how are you doing I'm good thank you I'm good yeah are you envious of my hair I had I my am... hair done today I'm quite oh, excited I am oh, very very envious Alina's <laughs> very bitter because she has to wait till the end of August she's got four <laughs> weeks left to wait before she gets her dog hair sorted out I got mine done this morning. <laughs> isn't she such a charmer oh <laughs> I looked as awful as you did this morning. I'm just smug now. I think I might stick with my my very long Rapunzel locks post lockdown. I might just keep it. It's quite fun. Uh, You don't live like on a ground floor flat or anything, do you? No, no. That'd be awesome if if you should not cut it till it touches the floor when you hang it out the window (laughs) now, just for shits and giggles. But it looks lovely anyway. Unlike me, you don't have disgusting root growth but let's talk about history mm. so this project is fascinating what got you into it and why does it interest you so essentially when when I was doing my PhD um there were there were two avenues that I got really interested in um that I never expected to be interested in so one of those was um the kind of intersection of gender and shopping and how those play together and that went into book number one which is uh, coming out at the beginning of next year and then the other one was how often in the 18th century in particular shopping was couched in these terms of, of whether it was productive and patriotic and economically useful for the country or whether it was just something um fun and leisurely that women would do and maybe not actually buy anything and just pop around some shops so there was mm. this kind of dichotomy and it was very much based around this idea of patriotism and then given the way that the global situation has evolved in the meantime uh, I've noticed lots and lots more of um kind of occurrences of buying British being used in tv ads um, in the way that, that various shops and companies are marketing their goods and there was just kind of this connection of oh this is this is an 18th century thing, but it's also a modern thing. 
And the more I looked into it, I found that there was this really long, long history. So this project has turned into being not old patriotic shopping in the 18th century, but actually 500 years of patriotic shopping all the way from Tudor, England, all the way through to, to now. And originally it was going to end with, with Brexit, but now I think it might end with COVID because there's been another, yeah. another splurge recently. Wow. So what do we actually mean by buying British? What, what are British goods? Yeah, so I, I think this is a really complicated question, far more complicated than it originally seems to be. Um, although that seems to be my, my like tagline in all my history stuff. When somebody asks me a question, I'm like, oh, well, it's more complicated than that. Um, so I'd like to, to contextualise all of this by talking about the more recent by British movements and some of the kind of complexities in that and then how we can reflect that back on by British movements in the past. So between the, the kind of the economic uncertainty caused by Brexit and by coronavirus, there have been quite a lot of calls in recent history in the UK for us to buy British. So back in 2017, post the Brexit vote, Tom Watson, who was deputy leader of the Labour Party at the time, spoke out about this and attempted to get a buy British movement off the ground. Not very much came of it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then more recently, so literally like a month ago, the Daily Mirror started the Shop for Britain campaign. Um, that was on the 15th of June this year, uh, which was when the shops were going to reopen post lockdown. Um, and it was supposed to be this kind of moment of economic resurgence. We could all go and help support the economy. And whereas um, Rishi Sunak had been doing wonderful things to support them beforehand. Now it was our turn and we could step in and go and shop again. So these modern movements have been framed as, as these means of kick-starting the economy at a time of crisis. Um, and the Mirror Shop for Britain campaign had a, a rather brilliant tagline, which is, every penny you spend, every purchase you make is a shop kept afloat and a job maintained. So they're very much like positioning it as you, you the individual, you the consumer out there can help save jobs and save the economy. Um, so this all sounds great, but like, what does, what does that even mean? Um, are we talking about buying from British owned companies? And do most people even know who owns what companies? What is a British owned company? Are we talking about goods that are made in Britain? Well then, is a British made good something where it's, it's all finally made here, or do all the components have to be made here as well? Because um, if you think about something like the Mini, the car, the Mini, which is like this quintessential English car. Well, BMW, actually, got, right? Yeah, um, yeah. It's now owned by BMW. Yeah, it's manufactured here, but it's got parts that are made in France, all over Europe. So it's kind of this, this lack of cohesion between the the rhetoric and the marketing of all oh, this is British well and actually know all these these bits come from all over the world the money doesn't stay in Britain even if it's made here um, where are they taking historically this like inspiration from for buy British so it goes back um a really a really long way it's a really long history of it so um I take my project back to uh Tudor England mm -hmm. and to um, 
to the end of sumptuary laws, essentially. So sumptuary laws were, were laws that meant, um, that were meant to regulate what people bought. So they were used to restrain luxury and extravagance. And most of them are actually about maintaining social order through dress. So if you are a king or a queen, you can wear super fancy things. If you're a noble of different, different ranks, you can wear other fancy things, but slightly less fancy things. Mm. So, so most of them are about that. But, um, and they were really widely used in medieval and early modern Europe and China and the Islamic world. There's loads of them. Um, and if you broke these rules, you could be fined or you could be pilloried. So while a lot of these laws were actually about maintaining the, the legibility of appearances, that you could tell who people were by what they looked like, um, some of them are about patriotism and the economy. And one of my favourite ones is about woolly hats. Um, so there was a law imposed in uh, in 1751 that said that on Sundays all men and I think it's boys over six years old had to wear a woolen cap, um, or they would be they'd be fined. Uh, I think the fine was something like um, three farthings a day or something. So if every day you didn't wear a woolen cap, you would be fined. Um, and the purpose for this was that wool was like the, um, the mainstay of the British economy at the time. Um, so, yeah, they were kind of they were making it a legal requirement that all men had to wear these woolly hats. Well, um, what if you just didn't want to? What if they made your head itch? Or... Oh, not patriotic to have an itchy head. <laughs> That's mad. <laughs> Alex, you're not patriotic because you have an itchy head. Sorry. Yeah, I don't like woolly hats. They make my head itch. Therefore, I must leave the country, right? Or pay three farthings a day. Exactly. That's the thing. They're getting money either way. They're getting money if you buy the woolly hat and are supporting the British economy. They get money if you break the rule and pay the fine. Right? Oh. So it, it all comes back to money at the end of the day. And it kind of it reminds me as well of um, some of the reactions to, you know, clapping for the NHS recently. Yeah. And, and this kind of, um, you know, various people wanted to and didn't want to for various very good reasons. Um, but that there's this kind of performative, oh, well, I have clapped and therefore I am a good person and I clapped for 10 minutes and therefore I am a good person and better than you who only clapped for five minutes sort of thing. And I bought my frying pan or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Like taking everything outside, weren't they? So there's a similar kind of thing going on where like, if you're wearing your woolly hat every day, then you are being patriotic. And if you don't for a day, then your kind of like your patriotic um, kind of cultural capital is is under threat because you're not being as patriotic as other people. Uh, and I just mad. find it hilarious that that can all happen through woolly hats. Yeah, I mean you've mentioned sumptuary laws, um, <laughs> but you you say that when their decline brings <laughs> about um, a need to structure consumption in new ways so people what did they just stop tolerating the idea of wearing the woolly hat or did they kind of just go out of fashion well they all got itchy heads yeah <laughs> there was so, a revolution <laughs> so essentially they some free laws were never particularly effective um partly because you couldn't really it's like if you think about the the other ones the ones that are more about legibility of appearances and social scales and things um if you saw somebody walking down the street in a purple silk doublet that they weren't supposed to wear, you wouldn't know. 
you wouldn't know, you know, you're, you're reading their rank through their clothes. So there was kind of this disconnect anyway between how the laws were supposed to work. Was it no one but royalties allowed to wear purple? Yeah, there's a whole, oh, there's, yeah. if you look them up online, there's a hilarious long list of all the different, like, minutiae of what different people can and can't wear. And if you were supposed to, like, remember this when you went shopping, you would, you would not be Without able to. a smartphone to Google the rules. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Wow. Um, so they, they fell into decline because of that and also because of various kind of broader social reasons about how um, the kind of the social structure of the, of the country was changing anyway. They weren't uh-huh. useful. Um, so, yes, yeah, so we move into the 18th century and there's this kind of void. There's this lack of direction about what is patriotic anymore. So when you have had these rules, these laws that kind of define very clearly for consumers this is what you should and shouldn't be wearing to be patriotic there's there's nothing um so what kind of steps into that void is this kind of um rhetoric about patriotic consumption that's a lot more fluid and a lot more complicated and a lot more um easy to get wrong but also there's a lot more there's a lot of different opinions about what is patriotic and what is correct and productive to be to be buying and to be wearing um and this this is also right in the context of the luxury debates as well so this is like um a debate about uh luxury goods and this kind of wealth of material culture which is coming into to britain and europe with sort of global expansion and um how some of that is seen as old luxury, which is just sort of super indulgent. Um, you're buying things you don't need um, versus new luxury, which is productive and is you're buying things that you don't need, but they support the economy in good ways. They support um, sort of new rational ways of thinking in, in new ways. So they become a kind of a positive thing. Um, so yeah, there's a lot changing in the 18th century, uh, politically and economically. Um, um, and most of this evolves around the expansion of empire as well, um, and international trade and exploitation of the countries and peoples that, um, that the British encounter as they spread out across the globe. Um, so there's, there's this really kind of, yeah, tricky transition period really between those sumptuary laws and then um, and then what happens in the 18th century? And there's a kind of there's a crossover actually, because in the the 1720s you actually get um, not sumptuary laws, but laws that come in that try to define what people can and can't wear. So um, if you think about calico, so calico sounds really boring to us. Like you wouldn't want a calico dress. That sounds. Ugh pretty uncomfortable Um, but 18th century calico is slightly different to modern calico but it was this um compared to the silks and the heavy wools and the kind of itchy woolly things that everybody had been wearing before calico was this really exciting imported cotton fabric it was really washable um and it was really beautiful it like had these uh floral designs all over it that were um really vibrant and colourful and exciting to, uh, to 18th century consumers' eyes. Um, and it was imported by the East India Company. 
And actually in the 1670s, the East India Company paid Charles II to wear a calico waistcoat as a way of marketing it as a... As Rat a bags that they were, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so calico is becoming really, really popular, but it's, it's seen as contributing to the decline in English weaving. Um, so, so lots of people are going out of work who are weavers in, in the wool and, and some in the silk industry as well, because this new cotton fabric is seen to be so desirable. Um, so they bring in something called the, the Calico Acts, which banned the import of these fabrics. Um, but they weren't very successful. If women wanted to wear pretty calico gowns, they were going to get pretty calico gowns one way or another. Um, and there are all, all of these stories, well, basically women are vilified in the press for continuing to wear these beautiful imported cotton gowns when it's not patriotic, when they're not supporting British weavers and they're not supporting British manufacture. And there are really horrific stories of British weavers who are out of work, who are, who are sort of in an economic decline, literally going out and ripping calico gowns off of the backs of women, um, assaulting them and essentially leaving them naked in, in fields and in the street because they're just, it's essentially this um, patriotic act of assault on women because they're not seen to be acting patriotically in what they are buying. That is ever so slightly ludicrous. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just gobsmacked. That's why I'm quiet. I'm sitting in my little corner and listening intently to what you have to say. Um, so how have bi-British movements changed over time? Um, so essentially, I would argue that you can read a lot of Britain's history, especially Britain's political history, through the way that that bi British movements have um, have evolved, so it's at these moments of political unrest or uncertainty or some kind of conflict with another nation that oh look suddenly we have a bi British movement pop up. Um, so, as I said, they've sort of they started with those laws, but after um, after the Calico Acts, there aren't really many laws well there's a few other little ones that sprinkle through but there aren't any kind of really big ones so it kind of turns into this culture war instead um where magazines and advertising and government programs of um of patriotic consumption have to lead the way to try to encourage people to uh shop patriotically so if you think later in the in the 18th century um France is Britain's real rival so again we see that um the kind of the political situation is informing how by British um is functioning so uh so yeah so later on we have France the real rival funnily enough France is who we're at war with and there's this mirroring between the rhetoric around buying British and what's what's going on politically and presumably beating people up for buying garlic or whatever <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Garlic? Um, France. Oh, yeah. First thing that springs to mind when I think of France. <laughs> For me, it's Not... a French breadstick. Oh, with garlic butter on. Anyway, look, look, we'd be rubbish at patriotic buying in the 8th, 19th and 18th centuries. Look at us. We're all over the French stuff. 
Well, they were in the 18th century as well. This is the thing. There's all this rhetoric around it, but British people did not want to buy British stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Particularly when it comes to fashion. So French fashion, then as through, you know, most of history, seemed to be better, seemed to be like the aspirational thing that you want to, that you want to buy, that you want to wear. Mm. Um, Paris is the fashion leader. Um, There's actually, there's a hilarious poem. my version of hilarious anyway Um, (laughs) but it says uh shall i wear clothes in awkward england made and sweat in cloth to help the woolen trade in french embroidery and flanders lace i'll spend the income of a treasurer's place so essentially (laughs) i don't want any of that horrible itchy woolen english stuff i want the french pretty stuff thank you very much that's brilliant So, so throughout history, though, there's been there's been movements that are like, yes, we want people to buy British, but consumers don't really want to, um, or, or rather, like various bodies of consumers don't really want to. They want they want the pretty things, they want the nice things. They're, they're not so bothered about um, the, the the impact of their spending, essentially. Um, and then again, like another another point where. Um, political history and by British kind of merges and reflects the history of the nation more broadly is as we see the British Empire begin to crumble at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, so there's a real surge um, in the 1920s. So on the 24th of May 1922, which was Empire Day, the Empire Marketing Board introduced Empire Shopping Week. Um, so I think, this, I think this might have had something to do with, with Empire. Maybe. Yeah, I think they might have been striking away at a point there. <laughs> yeah, this sounds like fun, though. I'll be well into that. <laughs> so this was, this was actually, um, like, this was a really big event, and it actually was successful in a way for a few years. Um, there were events in over 200 towns up and down the country. Um, an awful lot of Union Jacks would have been involved. Um, and there was bunting hung all over the place. There's amazing photos of streets with all this bunting down them, all these like pro-empire um, posters. There's a lot of problematic stuff going on in this, I must say. Um, but it was it was kind of branded as shopping being both a pleasure and a duty that you were kind of you were having fun while you were doing your patriotic duty and supporting mm. the nation. And the the boundaries of what is and what isn't a patriotic product were also kind of shifting as well so as countries were or weren't part of the empire then stuff from those countries was or wasn't patriotic so you had to kind of constantly be re-educating yourself if you wanted to be kind of patriotically conscientious about what counted anymore so like are Australian sultanas patriotic anymore well it depends on um, our relationship with Australia at that point and there's there's a lot of kind of, of shifting between the two. God damn it, if any more of these African nations declare their independence, we won't be able to eat bananas anymore or whatever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's the kind of thing that people are saying. Nonsense. <laughs> and there's, there's another one. So my, probably my favourite one, even though it's like the most modern thing I've ever researched, like I'm an 18th centuryist, my PhD is 18th century, but my, my favourite by British movement is in the 1960s. So um, this is another really tumultuous period. This is another point where like you're seeing 
British history reflected in what's going on in By British. Um, so we're really struggling with post-war trade deficit. Um, I, I am not an economic historian, may I say. The number of times I have to say economic or trade or deficit or something to do with money in this project. And, and, ooh, no. <laughs> I like things. I like pretty things. Don't like economics. Yeah, I got into this for the French lace and suddenly I'm an economist. <laughs> <laughs> we all have those moments as historians and there's a moment when I was researching Edward VII's affairs and I was like this is not what I signed up for <laughs> um so yeah so in the 1960s had all these, these economic issues um we'd actually tried to join the EU twice and they had turned us down um which I think is quite <laughs> hilarious really <laughs> Uh, so Britain was was economically struggling, um, and there's this amazing story about five suburban secretaries from Surbiton, my favourite tongue twister, um, who decided to work an extra half an hour for no extra pay. Um, considering that one of the things that the EU had taken issue with was that they didn't like some of our labour work ethics. Mm. The work without pay is probably not going the to French would that. have a meltdown at that, wouldn't <laughs> <Yeah>. they? <laughs> so, um, so this actually really rocketed. So these five women, from their like their act in their one company in Surbiton, um, spearheaded a really massive, actually, national campaign. Um, Surbiton is well known as a hotbed of dissent. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, avoid those uh, secretaries. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it, it really kind of took off. And there's, oh, I kind of do and kind of don't recommend that people Google this. But there's a song that Bruce Forsyth recorded that's called I'm Backing Britain that came from this campaign. Mm. And I, because I've been like, getting my head, my head into the Buy British headspace this morning to prepare for you guys. I listened to it and I haven't been able to get it out of my head since it's. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I kind of, I recommend that you look it up cause it's interesting, but ooh, maybe, maybe but just warn, be warned. It's an earworm. Yeah. Um, and very, very nationalistic as well. Um, and yeah will there be a few woke meltdowns if they hear it yeah ah, okay <laughs> all about the context people don't be hating on bruce forsyth will so, i cry <laughs> i don't know <laughs> <laughs> um so it's it's kind of this amazing this amazing um jump within a number of months from these five women deciding to work a bit more to this massive national campaign and there's actually there's loads of stickers and um paraphernalia and stuff memorabilia that was made for this movement which was partly about work a bit more it was partly about buy things that are made in britain um but it all fell apart when it was revealed that the the t-shirts that the campaign had had produced were, <laughs> where were they made they were made in portugal oh no <laughs> oh. oh dear so, yeah that's so that's a boy error hmm um, so that's one of my favourite ones, just because it's sort of it's this big eruption of support started by five women from Surbiton. Get Bruce Forsyth on side, and then get your t-shirts made in Portugal, and it just sort of it, it sums up a lot of what often happens with bi-British movements for me. That they start with 
um, a sort of, they start with a lot of patriotic rhetoric and a lot yeah. of, of good intent. Um, or, well, good, depends on how it's framed in the time. Um, but then they fall apart because it's just not economically viable by the time that um, Britain's manufacturing is beginning to kind of fall behind in the global stage anyway. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Let's talk a bit about gender. Mm-hmm. That, that always interests people, gender. So men were the producers and women were the consumers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so this is the kind of, um, this is what a lot of my other uh, work revolves around, this idea that um, that men were very much have been framed throughout history as being the productive, useful people who work in factories, who make things, who support the country and contribute to the economy. Um, and that women are culturally framed as being economically unproductive and they just laze around and do nice things all day. And spend the money. And spend the money. Sounds so, good to me. I mean, I <laughs> <laughs> Um, so a lot of my other work is, is actually about framing women as knowing how to make things as being, um, materially literate is how I frame it, that they do understand how things are made, that they've got this, um, uh, this knowledge of making. Um, but this takes a slightly different turn. So, um, while a lot of the kind of the core attributes of these misogynistic tropes of women centre on them being lazy and vain and um and not interested in the politics and economics um that that shopping is is a really big part of those of those tropes especially in the 18th century and uh, women were often described as as un- unpatriotic um unproductive consumers who just go from shop to shop looking at things not buying things um and just sort of turning over goods, taking up retailers' time because shopping in the 18th century was done um, in very much like a one-to-one way. You would need the retailers' time in order to um, to buy things. 
Um, and the this is where Bull in a China Shop comes from. Um, that these women were seen to be these like these menacing bulls who just come into shops, rip everything apart, looking at things, and then leave, not like, having bought anything. Does sound like the videos I saw of Primark after lockdown. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so so shopping is um, kind of seen as as something that women inherently engage in and something where they're going to continue to engage, but something where they kind of need to be educated in order to um, shop responsibly and patriotically and productively. Um, so this indulgent patriotic, uh, this indulgent shopaholic could be patriotic. And you see a lot of marketing materials and magazines that are essentially telling women how to shop and what to buy. So like, carry on with the shopping ladies, carry on with that. But while you're there, buy these particular things, do things in this particular way. Um, and your lazy vein activity can become something which is economically <laughs> productive. Um, again, this isn't necessarily very effective. Um, and a lot, of, a lot of people continue to completely ignore this. Um, especially if we consider how like how prevalent smuggling still is in the 18th century. So why does smuggling happen? Because people want things that, most of the time they want things that the country is not allowing them to import legally. Mm. So a lot of this stuff is the pretty French silks and all the nice lace. Um, and, and from my other project, I've got this amazing woman who has a set of letters between her in, in Yorkshire and her milliner in London. And she's essentially saying, can I have some illegal French things, please? <laughs> um, and the milliner is sort of saying, well, yes, I've got some. I've got some of these illegal goods in, in my shop. I've had to do things like cut the selvages off because the selvage would be the, the giveaway of whether mm. or not it was French or English. And they've cut them off so they can keep them in the shop safe. So there's a lot of this kind of, there's a lot of activity going on which does not conform with this um, patriotic productive narrative that people are, are trying to put onto women i was gonna ask you if buying british had ever worked uh, it sounds like no not really but and i guess the answer is going to be no does buying british have a place in the modern global economy you've mentioned the daily mirror trying to start something <laughs> off lately in that but is it just nonsense because as you say all the parts for the mini are made abroad yeah. I think it kind of, it depends what we mean by work. So if what we mean by work is that we want the country um, to have economic global dominance, then no, it's, it's never going to do that. Um, we, we simply don't have the infrastructure for that that we might have had in the 19th century. And yes, that's about manufacturing, but it's also kind of about... Um, being in charge of a morally deficient empire and we kind of don't want that anymore so mm. you know that's just not going to happen um but if we mean something a bit different to that if we mean that it works in the sense of reducing food miles um reducing carbon footprints from not importing things from all over the world supporting local producers and agriculture and small businesses then yeah absolutely then like, this is a thing isn't it like people love the idea that everything on their restaurant plate is from 100 miles that's but that's not it's not the same thing is it no i mean i think they're they're very much they're interconnected and and a lot of 
like the British agricultural scene will, will say, you know, we're framing this as British because of the air miles point of view, because of the carbon footprint point of view, not because it's some kind of like we hate the French beauty. Yeah. And they're asparagus. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, and we're doing things like attempting to grow tea here, which again is, it's not just about that kind of patriotic rhetoric. It's about, then we don't have to import it. Then we don't have to be sending tea on aeroplanes across the world. Um, so it does work in that sense. I think it's really interesting when there are occasions when we have attempted to start manufacturing things here again. And it doesn't work for two reasons. Either you try to place it at a kind of an affordable price point. So this is something like um, Mary Portis's Kinky Knickers campaign from um, 2012. Mm. Um, so she tried to set up a company that um, was making underwear that was entirely manufactured in Britain. And she found it nigh on impossible. And then um, in 2016, the manufacturer actually entered administration. So that did not go so well. Mm. Um, and, the, you know, the blue British passports are made in Poland. Like, you just can't really manufacture things here. Um, and then on the other like, end of the scale, there's lots and lots of small businesses that thrive on saying that things are made in Britain. But their price point is for a kind of um, aspirational middle class consumer. And it's relatively limited. And actually, most of their sales go abroad. And being British made is more appealing to an international market than it is to a British market. Um, so, yeah, so it kind of depends on, as I say, what we mean by it. Like, there's some elements of it that really do work, but they work in different ways to the way that by British is often intended. Um, and, yeah, there's... Food is probably the one area where this kind of isn't the case. And it's, it's interesting that the rhetoric used to, to promote food still tends to be, oh, it's British and therefore it's better, rather than actually, hey, this is environmental and ethical and saves food miles. Maybe um, they're just excited because they couldn't say that about beef for so long. Yeah, yeah that's true. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, like, if you think about Aldi and Lidl, like, they're very much not... British companies we all know that it's kind of inherent to their you know what we know them to be and yet their TV adverts will still be like hey look at this British lamb isn't it great mm. it's British um and yeah it's just it's really interesting to me that they're still pushing it as being British and yes there are benefits to that in the food miles situation mm. but that's not what they're talking about they're just saying hey it's great because it's British yeah so there's this, this kind of disconnect maybe between the rhetoric, between people, uh, how people talk about buying British as being this positive patriotic thing and actually what that means in practice um, and, and whether or not, you know, it, it can be kind of economically good. Um, I, I think the main thing that I think is really interesting is how buying British campaigns are very much a way for the, the onus of economic salvation of the country to be placed on the consumer rather than on the government. So if all of our shops are failing at once, it's because we're not shopping enough. It's not because the government have done something wrong. It's something mm. that consumers can do something about. So there's a, there's a disconnect there as well. So as I said, it's, it's this very kind of complicated intermingling of lots of different priorities. 
Um, and when you're talking about something which is so um, politically charged, particularly in kind of the aftermath of Brexit and things, um, yeah, it can get it can get a bit dicey. <laughs> That was absolutely excellent. Thank you so much for joining us to tell us all about British goods and how uh, rubbish people truly are. <laughs> so I had to, I had to, I had to sum it up like that because that's the only way I'm going to sum that one up. <laughs> well, thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Join us tomorrow when Nicola Lambert will be talking all about manliness and seduction and misogyny in the Victorian era. It's a really interesting talk. Don't miss that one. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.